you. Good morning to you all. It's good to see you. If you would turn to Acts chapter 2, we want to continue. Make sure I'm on here. I think I'm on. I'm going to continue looking at an overview of the Christian life. Acts chapter 2, we'll read again verses 36 through 47 today. Hope you're doing well. Hope you've had a good week. It's good to get together and worship together and be reminded of the truth. One of the things I'd like for us to keep in mind as we look at the scripture this morning is the reality that the Bible in various ways tells us that you can't be truly happy unless you properly mourn. It's one of those paradoxes of the Christian life is that Mourning and true joy in God or happiness in God go together. And so we've been uh, talking about the Christian life and highlighting the fact that Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 47, gives us a kind of microcosm of the Christian life. It talks about how we come to Christ, talks about how we walk with Christ. And the very first thing that we see in this passage is the reality of the need for the conviction of sin. And that's where the mourning comes in, in terms of the the need for mourning in order to have real joy and happiness in God. And so we want to continue uh, looking at this today. And so let me read for us these verses, beginning in verse 36, Acts chapter 2. It says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified, and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of God. And so, as I said, there's one thing that unites all of us this morning. Um, As Blaise Pascal said, every person, every moment of their lives pursues their happiness. And every decision they make, one way or the other, whether it's in the avoidance of pain or in the pursuit of pleasure, one way or the other, we're always pursuing our own happiness. And indeed, God has designed us to do that. Now, he designed us to find that happiness in him. 
But we pursue other things to try and find our happiness apart from God, to escape pain apart from God, to, uh, to enjoy pleasure apart from God. And so therefore, we need God to do a work in our hearts to push us toward the right goal, to lead us to where true happiness is found. And that's where the conviction of sin comes in. And so we're focusing primarily at this point on verses 36 and 37. Uh, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has fallen on the disciples. They've begun speaking in other languages, and people are hearing the gospel proclaimed in other languages. And this big crowd is gathered to try and find out what's going on. And Peter preaches this sermon, and at the very end of the sermon, he says in verse 36, Therefore, in light of all that I've just said, in light of the fact that this is a fulfillment of the passage in Joel where God says in the last days he's going to pour out his spirit on all mankind in light of the fact that God has raised Jesus from the dead and Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit as evidence of his rule and reign. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. That's the conviction of sin. They were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And so last week, we talked about the fact that it's, if this works here, if not, I might just have, have you, there we go. Thank you very much talked about the fact that in our day and time, sin is not a popular topic. Sin is not something that um, we like to talk about, we want to talk about, and certainly um, sin is being redefined even in our day and time. And so the first point that we talked about last week with regard to conviction of sin is that um, conviction of sin is undermined by what you might call the comfort of indulgence in the sense that we see God as an indulging God, like an indulging grandfather who kind of winks at his uh, grandchildren when they do something wrong. He, he's, he overlooks it. He sweeps it under the rug. He ignores it. He's not concerned about bringing it to uh, a proper consequence in judgment. And yet that's not the reality with God. God is holy and he's just and he promises that he will rightly and justly punish every sin. The other problem we have with the conviction of sin that hinders it is the what you might call the crusade of victimhood. In our day and time, it's popular basically to point to other people or to other groups and say the reason why I sin the way I do or the way, reason why I fall short in various ways is because of you. It's, it's your fault that I am the way I am. It's sort of like Adam looking at Eve when God challenged him and said, it was the woman you gave me, that's why I sinned. And Eve saying, it was that serpent who deceived me, that's why I sinned. We just naturally point toward other people. And that both of those things, thinking God is indulgent and will not hold us accountable for our sin, and thinking that somehow my sin is simply the fruit of someone else's sin, and therefore I'm excused, both of those things undermine the conviction of sin in our lives, and it certainly pervades our culture in so many ways. Well, the answer to that, to be delivered from that idea of indulgence and that idea of victimhood, is the light of the truth of Scripture. That's what rescues us from 
thinking that way. And so that's what, what I want to focus on this morning with the few minutes that we have together is thinking about that because it says in verse 37, now when they heard this, when they heard the word of God preached by Peter, that's when they were pierced to the heart. That's when they began to see things differently, to see themselves differently, to see God differently, and to realize that they were in trouble and they needed help. Um, one of the best-selling books of all time is the book The Pilgrim's Progress. How many people have read that book? Okay, quite a few of you have read The Pilgrim's Progress. It's um, The subtitle is From This World to That World which is to come. And it's a story of Pilgrim who goes from the city of destruction to the celestial city. It's a picture of moving from being under the wrath of God to actually enjoying heaven. And it's about um, how Pilgrim makes that pilgrimage and coming to Christ and walking with Christ. And John Bunyan, who was a Baptist pastor in England, wrote this in the 1600s. He wrote it while he was in jail. He was in jail for holding illegal worship services. If that makes any connection with any of our uh, circumstances today. That's why he was in jail. And it's considered one of the most significant works in English literature. Um, someone has said it's the first novel written in English. And... Um, Many would say it's the most famous allegory in the English language, in the English literature. Well, I want to read to you how this book, which is a very famous book and has been read by Christians throughout um, the centuries, um, how it begins. Because John Bunyan actually highlights John, uh, excuse me, Acts 2.37. And it forms the basis for how he starts out his discussion of the Christian life. He says, As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I lighted on a certain place where was a den. And I laid me down in that place to sleep. And as I slept, I dreamed a dream. So the whole story is a dream, so to speak. I dreamed, and and behold, I saw a man clothed with rags, standing in a certain place with his face from his own house, a book in his hand, and a great burden upon his back. I looked and saw him open the book and read therein. And as he read, he wept and trembled. And not being able longer to contain, he broke out with a lamentable cry, saying, What shall I do? Which is Acts 2.37. He actually has scriptures throughout the book that highlight what He's trying to picture in the story. He goes on and says, In this plight, therefore, he went home and refrained himself as long as he could, that his wife and children should not perceive his distress. But he could not be silent long, because that his trouble increased. Wherefore, at length, he broke his mind to his wife and children. He told them what he was thinking. Thus he began to talk to them. Oh, my dear wife, said he, and you the children of my bowels, I, your dear friend, am in myself undone by reason of a burden that lieth hard upon me. Moreover, I am for certain informed that this our city will be burned with fire from heaven. 
in which fearful overthrow both myself with thee, my wife, and you, my sweet babes, shall miserably come to ruin, except, the which yet I see not, some way of escape be found, whereby we may be delivered. At this his relations were sore amazed, not for uh, that they believed what he had said to them was true, but because they thought that some frenzied distemper had gotten to his head. They thought he was going crazy. Therefore, it, it drawing towards night, and they hoping that sleep might settle his brains, with all haste they got him to bed. But the night was as troublesome to him as the day. Wherefore, instead of sleeping, he spent it in sighs and tears. So when the morning was come, they would not know how. He, excuse me, they would know how he did. He told them. Worse and worse, he also set to talking to them again, but they began to be hardened. They also thought to drive away his distemper by harsh and surly carriages to him. Sometimes they would deride, sometimes they would chide, and sometimes they would quite neglect him. Wherefore, he began to retire himself to his chamber, to pray for and pity them, and also to condole his own misery. He would also walk solitarily in the field, sometimes reading, sometimes praying, And thus for some days he spent his time. Now I saw upon a time when he was walking in the fields that he was, as he wont, reading in his book and greatly distressed in his mind. And as he read, he burst out as he had done before, crying, What shall I do to be saved? I saw also that he looked this way and that way as if he would run. Yet he stood still, because, as I perceived, he could not tell which way to go. I looked then and saw a man named Evangelist coming to him and asked, Wherefore dost thou cry? Or why are you crying? He answered, Sir, I perceive by the book in my hand, I perceive by the book in my hand that I am condemned to die, and after that to come to judgment. And I find that I am not willing to do the first, nor able to do the second. Then, then evangelist said, Why not willing to die since this life is attended with so many evils? The man answered, Because I fear that this burden is upon my back, or excuse me, that this burden which is upon my back will sink me lower than the grave, and I shall fall into Topheth. Another reference to the underworld and to ultimately punishment. And sir, if I be not fit to go to prison. I am not fit. I am sure to go to judgment and from thence to execution. And the thoughts of these things make me cry. Then said Evangelist, If this be thy condition, why standest thou still? He answered, Because I know not whither to go. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. Then he gave him a parchment roll, and there was written within, Flee from the wrath to come. So that's how one of the most popular or best-selling books in English history begins. It starts with a discussion of a man who has been reading a book, the Bible, and he has a burden as a result upon his back, which is a picture of sin. And he wants to know what can I do in light of what this book tells me, in light of the condition that I see that I'm in, what am I to do? Now, there are a couple scriptures that I want to highlight that John Bunyan highlights. Isaiah 64, 6 is a scripture that's probably familiar to many of you, especially in light of his reference to 
pilgrim being a man clothed with rags. Isaiah 64, 6 says, For all of us become like one who is unclean, unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Even our best deeds are filthy in the eyes of God. And all of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And then Psalm 38, 4 uh, is where he gets the idea of a burden on the back. So he's clothed in rags. His best deeds are filthy rags. And the burden on his back is uh, a reference to Psalm 38, 4, where he says, um, For my iniquities or my sins are gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. Like a heavy, heavy burden. And so, uh, Bunyan's Pilgrim is a man who has, a, has the burden of sin that has been created by the Word of God. Seeing and understanding his condition in light of the Word of God. In our day and time, the question is, do we see many people that way? Are we that way to some degree or another? So, the second point is, with regard to conviction of sin, it comes in the light of the truth. We're not going to find it by just listening to the culture. We're not going to find it just listening to our own thoughts. We see ourselves truly as we are when we look at what the Word of God says. And the truth that we see is the truth about God, the truth about Jesus, the truth about what God requires of us. One of the things that you see in the history of the church is you see like with the Puritans and others, they would talk about law and gospel. They'd talk about the need to talk about the law of God, the truth of God in light of the law, and then to proclaim the gospel. It says in Psalm 119, 142, your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness and your law is truth. We increasingly live in a a lawless society. More and more people want to throw off the idea that there are any common expectations or standards or rules or laws that we should have to submit to. And essentially in Matthew 7, Jesus says about those who say, Lord, Lord, but he never knew them. He says of people like that, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness that you cannot be a true Christian and be someone who is not concerned about doing what God says to do. You can't be a true believer in Jesus and truly right with God and to be lawless. It says in Matthew 13, The Son of Man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. In Matthew 24, it says, Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. That's in a a chapter on the return of Christ, what is going to happen before Christ comes back. That uh, many people's love will grow cold, which is probably a reference to the apostasy that Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians. And it's because lawlessness increases. Uh, People aren't concerned about God's standard of obedience even in fact in second thessalonians 2 um, many people understand that to be a reference to the antichrist uh, who will be 
empowered by Satan, and he's called the man of lawlessness. And there's a reference to the mystery of lawlessness. So as lawlessness increases, we see the activity of Satan, we see the true condition of men's souls, and we see more and more our need for a Savior. And that's true of all of us, is that we need to see our lawlessness in order to be convicted of our sin, in order to embrace the only kind of Savior there is. And the only kind of Savior there is is a Savior for sinners who have broken the law of God. Uh, You may have um, seen um, the Way of the Master program with Ray Comfort. You may have even been in Huntington Beach when he's been down there filming and interviewing people because he does it right there at the pier at Huntington Beach, as I understand it. So Ray Comfort, um, him and Kirk Cameron will do these videos and they'll interview people and they encourage what they call the way of the master. And one summary of that says the way of the master evangelism evangelism method is a technique developed by TV show hosts Ray Comfort and Kirk Cameron, which seeks to witness to the lost by application of the Mosaic law to show men their sin and ultimately bring them to conviction and subsequent repentance. So if you ever watch that program, uh, you'll see them walk up to people and they'll begin a conversation by asking the question, do you think you're a good person? And most people will say yes. I think I'm a good person. And then they'll say, well, can I ask you some questions? And they'll begin to ask questions in light of the Ten Commandments. And so they'll ask uh, questions like, how many lies do you think you've told in your life? And they'll say, oh, quite a few. Um, And then they'll ask something like, have you ever stolen anything, no matter how much it was worth? And they'll say, yeah, I guess I've stolen a pencil or whatever. Um, Then they'll say, have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? Have you ever cursed or anything like that? Or they may ask, have you ever looked at a woman with lust? And most people, if they're honest, will say, yeah, I guess there have been times when I've lied and when I've taken things that weren't mine or I've looked with lust on someone else or or things like that. And most people, or many people anyway, the ones that get on the show, they will say, yeah, I, um, I guess I have. And then they'll ask something like, well, what does that make you then? And the argument will be, doesn't that make you a liar? Doesn't that make you an adulterer? Doesn't that make you a thief? And then they'll ask something along the lines of, if you were judged by the Ten Commandments, would you be guilty or innocent? Just based on what we've talked about, if God were to judge you based on the Ten Commandments, would you be guilty or innocent? And and, um, some people will say, guilty. I guess I would be guilty. And then they would ask, do you think you will go to heaven or hell based on that judgment? And some people say, well, I guess based on that judgment, I would go to hell because I will have broken the law of God. And then that's when uh, Ray Comfort will talk about the death of Christ for sinners and encourage repentance and faith in Jesus. And so the point of it is that they're approaching uh, sharing Christ with people in light of the fact that many people don't even have a consciousness of sin or an understanding of sin or, or even think that they're a sinner. They, they think they're good. And so the, the law of God is brought in to highlight that very reality. In John 16, verses 8 through 11, it says, 
We've talked about the ministry of the Spirit when he comes. Remember the book of Acts is about the coming of the Holy Spirit. In John 16, 8, it says, And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Now, these verses have been interpreted in different interpreted in different ways, but the basic idea seems to be the ministry of the Holy Spirit, especially when he's drawing people to Christ in a saving way, is that there will be conviction of sin. And it's a conviction of sin that's actually rooted in unbelief, that we begin to see that we've sinned against God and we have not trusted him in the way we should, we have not believed in the God revealed in Jesus as we should have, will be actually convicted of our own self-righteousness and the fact that the that the reality that Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead and went to heaven is evidence of his righteousness, that I have filthy rags on and my best efforts cannot make me right with God and indeed condemn me before God and therefore my only hope is the righteousness of Christ and that the Spirit also convicts us of our judgment of God, our judgment on Jesus, that we would condemn God rather than have ourselves condemned. We would condemn Jesus rather than have him, um, rather than receive his uh, words to us. But the hope is that through what Christ has done, sin, death, and hell, and Jesus have been defeated, and we can actually escape the judgment to come. And so it's the work of the Holy Spirit to convict us of our own sin and unbelief, our own self-righteousness and filthy rags that we might look to Christ and his righteousness, our own judgment and condemnation of God himself, and therefore his willingness to rescue us from that very judgment through what Christ has done. And so how does the Spirit convict us of this? Well, he does it through the law of God. First uh, John 3, 4 says, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. In one sense, the Bible says that sin is falling short of the glory of God. Uh, we're not like God like we should be. Uh, in our thoughts, in our desires, in our words, in our actions. So we fail to be like God. That's one way to think about it. Another way to think about sin is that it is breaking the law of God. It's disobeying what God has to, has said to do or not do. James 2.9 says, If you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. The Westminster Shorter Catechism is one illustration of many catechisms through through Christian history that talk about the gospel. They they pose a question and then give an answer. That's what a catechism typically does when you teach your children or or others or new believers. There's a question asked and an answer given. There's There's obviously gospel truth that's being portrayed, but typically you have an extensive discussion of the law of God and in particular the Ten Commandments. Why? Because in order for us to fully embrace Christ as we should, we have to be convicted of our sin. In fact, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, question 39 says, what is the duty that God requires of man? And the answer is, the duty which God requires of man is obedience to his revealed 
will. And then ask the question next, so um, basically what has God given us so that we can know what his will, will is? And he says, the answer rather, is the moral law of God. And then the next question is, well, where is that moral law summarized? And it's summarized, the answer says, in the Ten Commandments. That's where we find the moral law of God. And then the question comes, well, what is the summary of the Ten Commandments? Or what are they basically pointing to? And it says they're pointing to the, the greatest command, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so ultimately it's arguing that the law is summarized in the Ten Commandments. And that if we want to know what God expects of us, we can look at those Ten Commandments. And we can expect the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to convict us of how we've broken the law of God, that we might be led to Christ. And Calvin would say the first purpose of the law is to lead us to Christ. It's the tutor, as Paul says in Galatians, the tutor that leads us to Christ so that we can be saved. And so the question is, how does the law play into what is going on here? Well, the law plays into this in that when Peter says that they have crucified Jesus in Acts chapter 2, Uh, Verse 36, he speaks of the fact that God has raised up Jesus and made him Lord in Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And it says, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. They were convicted in light of what Peter said. Therefore, they must have been convicted of how they had broken the law of God in their relationship to Jesus and in their response to Jesus. And the question is, How did that take place? How in the relationship that the Jews had and how in our own relationship to Jesus have we broken the law of God? Because we have to see that in order to be led to Christ. Um, The question I'll just close with um, is the question, have you ever felt the burden like, Pilgrim and Pilgrim's Progress, have you ever felt the burden of having broken God's law? Have you ever felt that weight of guilt and responsibility and accountability before God like Pilgrim? And the question is, what have you done about that? What what did you do in response to that burden? Again, I go back to Uh, What I said initially, you can't be truly happy unless you properly mourn. And I'll just close with a couple of scriptures that highlight that. Um, In James 4, 6, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In order to be convicted of sin... We have to be humbled. And it's interesting, Jesus says in Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are happy, truly happy, or the poor in spirit, or the humble, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourn in what way? Over their sin. They see their sin, they're grieved by their sin, 
They want to be free from their sin, free from the penalty of it, free from the power of it, and they mourn over it. And so uh, Christianity 101 begins with a conviction of sin because there's no need for a savior if we have no sin to be saved from because Jesus is not the savior of the prosperity gospel. He did not say, trust in me and I'll make you rich here on earth. Trust in me and I'll make you healthy here on earth. There are true riches in Christ, but it's not those kinds of riches. And so if I come to Christ for anything but rescue from my sin, then I'm coming to him for the wrong reason. But if I am coming to him, because I feel the weight of that burden on my back, and I know that there's a wrath promised to those who do not come to him for rescue, then I can be certain that he's an able and willing Savior for sinners. He loves to save sinners. And he's ready to save anyone who will confess their sin, turn to him for mercy and grace, and embrace him as their Lord and their Savior. And that's the good news. Jesus came to be an able and willing Savior for us. And that's what we're about to celebrate in the Lord's Supper. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the the truth of our sin, for telling us that we have a cancer that is eternally terminal if something is not done, for telling us that we live in the city of destruction and there is a judgment coming, but there is a way of escape. I pray, Father, that all of us here would feel the weight of our sin, the burden of sin, and yet run to Jesus, trust in Jesus, hope in Jesus, rejoice in Jesus, either for the first time or for the, the, the thousandth time or the millionth time. May we this morning rejoice in an able and willing Savior for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.